We thank you again, Lord, for a night of study. We thank you for the revelation you've given us in this book, and we thank you, Father, that uh, we are so close to the end, that we would be the privileged generation, perhaps, to see the Lord's return. Um, But even if that's for a later generation, Father, we know that our time here will have an end one way or another, and we want to be ready. So, Father, um, while we look at things that may or may not affect us personally in the details of of the book tonight, help us to see others in this moment and in that way, Father. Help help us to feel uh, a greater sense of urgency for their sake. For we know, Father, that you delight to call to yourself wayward sons and daughters, and those who have wandered away and, and are due to come back, Father, we pray maybe we'd be useful to you in retrieving some, and that this information might be the, the way in which you get their attention through what we know and what we can share. We ask for that opportunity, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Revelation lesson number seven. We're studying now the tribulation. And this is about the point where those who've said, oh, I never want to study that book, it was, it's just too scary. It's usually right about now that those people drop out of the study, if they're going to, but I hope not, because uh, we've already established that the tribulation, which is what we're studying now, or otherwise known as uh, the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, this period of history is not for us. It's for those who will be left behind after the church has been removed. And last week we learned that this period of history is fast approaching because all the signs that Jesus gave us have begun. And we know that the Lord has promised to return for us before this time begins. And really then that begs the question, what are we studying it for? (laughs) Other than the mere fact that it's in the Bible. Well, we're studying it for the purpose of understanding what's coming for the world. And it's in that understanding that we're in a position to explain it to others, both in the church and those who are yet to believe. For those who are in the church, it's your opportunity to convince them to study it for themselves, those who would otherwise not want to. And for certainly those outside the church, those in the world, we have an opportunity in the right way to explain to them that wanting to escape that should be a priority. (laughs) So Daniel told us that this seven-year period will begin when a man makes a covenant with Israel and This covenant will permit Israel to return to their temple mount and begin to sacrifice. That moment, as I said last week, is not recorded in Revelation, but you do see the moment surrounding that event in the book of Revelation. And specifically, we started to see last week the rise of a man onto the world stage, a mysterious figure who would be a leader, who would come with threats of war, and his arrival is depicted in the beginning of the time of tribulation chapter 6 of revelation so we started this study last week and we looked at the first two of seven seals that affix a scroll and as jesus broke every one of those seals as you know things begin to happen on earth and the first seal corresponded to the rise of the antichrist's power and we saw as he opened that first seal a symbolic representation on earth beginning with a white horse And then after that, a bow, although this bow is without arrows, as we said last week, so it suggests that he has threats of war without actually the means of carrying it out. And he wore a wreath, and this wreath uh, gave the indication that he has uh, a certain power base, but it's not royal. It's not as though he was a king, but he has a power base. He's earned, as it were, some power position in the world, probably through military means. And 
These features all come together to represent a man who has military aspirations, political aspirations, doesn't quite have the power yet to carry out all that he desires. Perhaps it starts with a coup, maybe a rebellion, threats of force against neighboring powers, whatever it is, it begins a rise to power for this man. And it was initiated by Jesus. Opening that seal, he lets loose this person onto the world stage. Then we saw the second seal. The second seal was a red horse. The red horse uh, follows the theme of the white one so that we see that there's a connection here, that this is a building picture. And the second uh, seal with the red horse uh, also had a rider. That rider was also he, meaning a reference to the same guy you've already seen in the first case. And now he is carrying a sword. And a sword is a far different weapon than a bow without arrows. A sword is obviously a weapon of war. And so the picture here now is of widespread bloodshed, hence the red horse. And the man who was threatening battles, threatening to conquer, is now able to do it. He initiates it. And he does it at a great expense to the world. And as you think about what these judgments sound like, the the idea that you have a military leader who brings threats of war and then the onset of war, you think, well, that's not especially terrible. We see that today. Well, I want you to remember World War II and how the devastation came about after World War II or what it produced in the world. Even if you didn't live through it, and most of us didn't, uh, you've certainly seen enough on TV and movies to know that World War II was a terrible thing. And then you remember Jesus said that the wars that would come to end the age would be like birth pangs. And we remember what that means, right? Increasing severity, increasing frequency. And that would tell us that as bad as World War II is, uh, World War III, if you want to call it that, will be far worse, probably because nuclear weapons will be involved, or so I would assume. Can you imagine the bloodshed inflicted by nuclear weapons if they were involved? So the point is that while it talks in very general, very simple terms in the text, the implication is this is a worldwide catastrophe that has no parallel for our sake today. And it leads us directly into the next seal judgment. So let's pick up there, reading in chapter 6, verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So we continue, and in this one we have another horse. The horse this time, as you heard, is black. And a black horse, you know, that that symbolism could go a number of different ways. So we want to look at the text as a whole to understand it. John is instructed after the seal is broken to look down to see what transpires on the earth. And the rider on this horse has scales in his hand. Uh, Also, again, an unnamed reference to this rider, just he again. And so this continuing use of a horse with a he on top of it is simply evidence that we're still looking at the same person as we move through this pattern. So we're looking at the impact of the Antichrist's rise to power as he takes step after step in that progression, as Jesus literally propels him forward into his position of power. And the horse being black now, like red and white, it symbolizes things. And as I said, it can symbolize many things. So how am I gonna know what it really means in this case? Well, I have to look at the context. And specifically, I want to look at what's been said about the other horses in the context of this horse, and I want to look at what the man's holding, and in this case, he's holding scales. So let's talk about scales for a moment. This man has uh, got scales. This is what we mean by scales, something like this. And scales, on 
in that sense, are not common anymore in our modern culture. And in fact, if we ever use scales like this as a symbol today, we don't use it in the same way. We use it to Im- imply the blind justice of, of our judicial system, right? Our impartial judicial system. But the context here is not one of justice or impartiality. So that idea for this symbol doesn't apply here. We need to go back to a more ancient understanding of this symbol. And in ancient times, the monetary system was based on a bartering of goods, and the value of things was established by weight. And so goods would often be sold or bartered by their weight. And therefore, you needed something like this at the retail locations so that you could understand whether you were getting paid properly or not at each transaction. So on a scale, to establish and and compare the value of two things being traded or a method of payment that's being established, you would put an object of known weight on one side and you would put another object, maybe the object that's for sale or maybe the coins that are being given to you as payment for that uh, sale would go on the other side and by establishing that they are of equal weight, you would establish that they are of equal value. Because in that day, coins were made of precious metal, and if you didn't do this when you took someone's coin, then it became easy for someone to shave some of the precious metal away from the coins, just enough that you didn't notice the difference, but over time, they could collect more coins, effectively, saving that, those shavings, uh, and then the weight of that material becomes wealth. So to keep the monetary system uh, fair and in the integrity of it, uh, merchants would weigh your coins before they would receive them. So, the reference to a scale in that context would be like us putting a cash register up there or a card swipe machine or something. What it means is commerce, commerce. And so, a reference to the Antichrist holding scales points our attention to the economic impact this man will have as a result of his rise to power. And in the context it's clearly symbolizing his impact on the world's economy because you can see a pattern emerging. You have the threat of a military leader, Whitehorse, and that becomes a trigger eventually to actually engage in war, Red Horse, and the bloodshed that comes from it. And then following a great worldwide war, something that is far greater than even World War II would have been or was, What follows naturally from that? Well, obviously death, destruction, but also the interruption of normal daily life. And the onset of war has widespread devastation to economies around the world. Uh, The effect of World War III will be, as I'm calling it, uh, a severe scarcity of goods as supplies are reduced, the ability to farm is going away because land is no longer useful or people who would farm it are now off in battle. Uh, Supplies decrease as supplies decrease, prices increase. And with that price inflation, you see a lot of other consequences reflected in verse 6 in this unprecedented level of runaway inflation. John is told that a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley will each cost a denarius. Now, here's a denarius for anyone who might want to look at it later. This is a denarius. This was unearthed near the Temple Mount in Israel. This is a denarius from around Jesus' time, more or less. And not very big, made of silver. And it's roughly four and a half grams of silver. And in Jesus' day, in John's day, that's about what it would buy. That little coin would buy 12 quarts of wheat. 
in, in that day. This represented, by the way, the wage of a day laborer. This was the backbone of the Roman economy. Uh, if you worked as a day laborer, and many, many people did, you were paid every day, one coin a day. You, you didn't get it like two, twice a month. Every day you worked, at the end of the day you got your money. And this would get you through the next day or three or four or a week with what you needed to supply for your family, and then you would continue working. It was first introduced about 211 BC, and it had ever since then become the main increment of, of money in Israel, I mean in uh, Rome. So 12 quarts of wheat would produce roughly a loaf and a half of bread for each quart. So if I turn that into actual bread, we're talking about that. So one day of work gets you that. But what we're told is in the time of the Antichrist, one denarius gets you that. Now if I put that in modern terms, if this represents what somebody gets for a day of labor at the basic level of the economy, that might be equivalent to someone working for minimum wage or slightly better than that today. And if you work all day for minimum wage, maybe a little better than minimum, something closer to what most places pay these days, you might get about 80 bucks a day, $10 an hour, something like that. So if you spend that $80 frugally, you could probably support a family with subsistence food for several days. Maybe a week if you just bought the simplest of things with it. But if you translate that value to what we're seeing here, if you do the math between our economy and what was true in that day, what that's saying is that in the time of the Antichrist, a loaf of bread will be 60 bucks. Imagine if a loaf of bread today cost you $60. What would meat cost? What would cheese cost, right? So that's the impact of the Antichrist's rise to power. And what would be the impact of hyperinflation to that degree? Well, the answer is obvious. Worldwide panic, uh, rampant crime, looting, and ultimately starvation for many. And the Antichrist produces these effects indirectly through the prosecution of war. And war naturally brings pressure on food supply. It disrupts food production and distribution. Armies consume large amounts of supplies. They don't leave much left for civilian populace. So as that just begins to roll, death becomes the norm. That's why you have a black horse. It symbolizes the death of many from a war-induced hyperinflation leading to global starvation. Now, as before, you trace this back, though, to an opening of a seal. So what we're saying is the Lord permits these judgments to come upon the world. In fact, the voice that declared what the value of things would become came from the center of the throne. One guess who that is. So it is God himself establishing this stressor on the world and its resulting effects on humanity. He is both the giver and the taker of life. He sets the day of our birth and the day of our death before we are born, we're told in Job. So what happens to us is in his hands regardless of the methods he might use. And I want you to remember that as you think about these things and don't put any judgment on God because whether you die in your sleep or die of starvation, you're still dead. It doesn't, that is not an, a difference with any value assigned to it except that we assign value to it because we prefer to die away we prefer. That is, that is no significance otherwise. God takes life as he chooses to, when he chooses to. By the way, how did he take his own son's life? He didn't let him die in his sleep either, did he? So you have to understand the method of death does not mean anything when reflected on God. The fact is all people die sooner or later. 
And he is choosing to do what he's doing in the world at large to make something happen out of it that is good. But it, it requires this kind of tremendous turmoil. Notice at the end there were two products that were specifically excluded from high prices, wine and oil. And I will tell you that, that if you want a little hobby, you can spend a lot of time examining all the speculation that people throw out for what these two things mean. It's like its own little cottage industry within this whole book. Um, I think there's an obvious answer, and maybe this is different than yours, and I don't, that's fine. But these happen to be the chief crops in Israel, and they come from olives and grapes, which both represent Israel in Scripture. I don't think that's a coincidence. In other words, this is code. This is a code, if you will, or a symbol, representing that the land of Israel will be spared, to an extent, from the warfare. That while the rest of the world is in turmoil, and all that comes from it results, including hyperinflation, uh, as it were, wine and oil, so to speak, will not be affected. And that makes perfect sense, because remember, what was the impetus for the Antichrist's rise to power? How did he get into power to begin with? Or another way to say it is, what starts the tribulation? An agreement with Israel, a covenant with Israel that allows Israel to have access to their Temple Mount. It would seem as though in that agreement, the Antichrist has agreed to let them have that without threat, and meanwhile, he goes off to terrorize the rest of the world. Of course, that doesn't last the whole seven years, but it does last for three and a half. So this would seem to indicate that the Lord is carving out an exception for his people Israel during this time so that they are not suffering under the same devastating effects of war that the rest of the world will be. But don't worry, they don't get off scot-free. Remember, this whole thing is about them at the end. He's just not taking it to them in this way yet. All right, that takes us now to the next seal. Chapter 6, verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come. The fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. All right, so the fourth seal brings yet one more horse with a rider. And now, of course, we know we're looking at a step-by-step impact of the arrival of the Antichrist. And so this is the last step in the chain. Uh, Still a a horse and a rider and still a he and all the rest. Uh, But the naming of this rider, that is being called death, and the addition of a follower, Hades, that adds new mystery. That breaks the pattern to an extent. Uh, now, the addition of, I'll just cover something you might have heard. There's uh, those out there who would tell you that because of the addition of Hades here, that this is actually the fourth and fifth horses, because Hades is, quote, following. But if you make that conclusion, you're missing the whole point of, of what's happening here. Remember, the pattern has been established with the first three seals. Each rider pictures the Antichrist. Each horse pictures something that Antichrist is doing as he rises to power. So that's the pattern that's been established. You don't break that pattern easily unless you really feel the text is asking you to do that. So I don't see anything here that would suggest we would do that. On the other hand, the nature of the horses, the symbols, they all reflect this building progression of outcome. The fourth is the natural next step in that progression. What happens after you do everything that's been done in the first three? You get a lot of death. Death is the expected outcome from all of these events. And what happens after an unbeliever dies? Then again, the next step, they're in Hades. This is just finishing the progression. 
Obviously, death and Hades are not real people. Death is a condition, and Hades is a place. So the logical interpretation is is these are the final, ultimate effects of the Antichrist. Widespread death on earth. And the effect of death for the unsaved is hell. And that conclusion, by the way, is supported by the horse's color. It's a pale green. Ashen is the term in my Bible, but the Greek word is chloros, from which we get words like chlorophyll. So it's actually green, the word green in Greek. And a kind of ashen, very, very light, pale green color is the color of the body hours or days after death. And left unburied, that's where we all end up. So secondly, in, uh, you see, so first you see the color, and then secondly, in verse eight, we're told what the effect is, and it confirms our conclusion, right? The overall toll of war and famine and the pestilence that follows that, and even wild beasts who are also hungry, the effect of all of that is a fourth of humanity dead. Now let me put that in context. By today's population count, that would be roughly two billion people. By comparison, the highest estimates of those who died in World War I was uh, 22 million. The highest estimates of those who died in World War II was 56 million, birth pangs, getting worse. So we're talking about an order of magnitude and then some beyond what we saw in World War II. Uh, this next war will have an unimaginable devastation on the earth, right? Just as birth pangs would suggest. And the deaths are the result of the culmination of all that we've been studying, as we heard. Sword, which is war. Famine, which is the result of war. Pestilence, which is usually the disease that follows sickness brought about by famine. And then the wild beasts who are becoming more aggressive, looking for their own source of food. All right, let's stop for a minute and kind of put some things together. I want to look back on these first four judgments, and I want to show you how the pattern has been building. So we start back at the beginning with the first seal, and that was the white horse. That's the Antichrist coming to conquer, right? Then we have the second seal, the red horse, the war and the bloodshed that follows. Then we have the third seal, which is obviously the black horse, high inflation, economic collapse, and then the one we just finished with, which is the ashen horse, and that's famine, pestilence, widespread death. All right, so these all four represent one guy rising to power. That's why we keep seeing horse and horse and horse. You're not going to see a horse again in any of the judgments. So you have a horse pattern at the beginning linking them. And as you look at that progression, it makes perfect sense why they're linked, because there's clearly something that's pulling you down this path, right? There's clearly some natural progression that follows. So those are simply the cause and effect relationship of what happens when a guy like him, like the Antichrist, gets that powerful and begins to disrupt the world at that level. And we've actually seen this before, just not on this scale. What's the last time you saw a guy with a similar pattern? Hitler, World War II, birth pangs, hello, right? It's the new Hitler, but worse. All right, that's what we're looking at. Let's move on now. Verse nine, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been 
would be completed also. All right, we've broken out of the pattern. The fifth seal doesn't follow the whole horse idea anymore. In fact, this seal also breaks the pattern we've been watching earlier in which you saw John being told after each seal come and then he would look down on the earth and he would see something. Doesn't happen this time. His vision remains entirely in heaven through the whole of this one. And John describes first in his, his scene here the altar. Now remember, an altar is always a place of sacrifice. And its presence in heaven would mean that this is the place of sacrifice in heaven. And in heaven, there is only one place of sacrifice, which is the heavenly tabernacle. And Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ, being our high priest over that tabernacle, presides, and his blood is that sacrifice. And it was a once and for all sacrifice. So there is no continual sacrifice in heaven. That's the altar we're looking at here. And under this altar, John says he sees souls of what I'm calling martyrs, which is the term for anyone who dies for their faith, and they are in the form of disembodied spirits, souls only. And we know, therefore, these cannot be church saints because all church saints receive their new physical bodies at the resurrection, which we witnessed in chapters 4 and 5. They're in bodily form already in heaven. So what, what do we know about these people? These are human beings who died after the resurrection of the church, which means they died during the tribulation itself. Secondly, we know they're killed, it says, because of the word of God, because they maintained their testimony. So that's where I say they're martyrs. They died because of their faith. Clearly then, that's why they're up in heaven, they're believers. I mean, if it's not obvious enough already, they wouldn't be where they are if they weren't believers. So here we have believers from the earth, martyred for their faith after the time the church is removed. And that just produces a little mystery for us because we wonder where they came from, among other things. And we'll get to that. They're asking, as you hear there, for justice for their death. So they are obviously victims of some kind of injustice on earth. That seems clear. And yet they're told, sorry, the time isn't here yet. There's going to be more like you. More will have to be killed in the same way until that number is complete and until then there won't be justice for you. So what that's telling us is these are merely the first to be martyred and that there are going to be many more who are going to share in their experience before the end comes. So if you take all of these facts and you put them together, you can make several conclusions concerning these souls. First, these souls were believers on the earth. Clear enough, otherwise they wouldn't be in heaven. That tells you, obviously, that faith has come back to the earth since the time that the church has been removed. Um, That leaves us wondering, though, well, uh, how does faith come back to the earth when there's no one on the earth to evangelize anyone? because obviously that's changed as well. Um, Next, we know that these believers on the earth were living during tribulation and therefore became targets of persecution, even to the point of death, being killed for their testimony. What that's telling us is that in the tribulation, being Christian is dangerous. Being Christian is dangerous, and certainly that's true in pockets of the earth today, but this is a worldwide truth in this day. And furthermore, we've already learned these are the first of what will ultimately be a very large group of people who will die for their faith. What do you call martyred saints that come to faith and die following the removal of the church from the earth? Well, most call them tribulation saints. And as you'll see during the full course of this study, these saints endure hell on earth before they die. And therefore, never has it been more true that death is a blessing for the believer than it will be for these believers. 
And so we must understand that this seal that we're watching here, it's not a moment during the seven years. That's why John is not told to come and look. This is not a moment. This is a summary of the seven years. This seal represents what will be going on during the time of tribulation for believers, which is why we get that moment in which they're told, wait, there's more like you coming. That's our clue to know this is not a moment. This is a life. If you might want to put it this way, it's a lifestyle for Christians during the tribulation. And this is exactly what Daniel said would happen. Remember back in Daniel 7, we studied this. In Daniel 7.24, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. That's the Antichrist. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and notice, and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they, meaning the saints, will be given into his hand, For a time, times, and half a time. And then it goes on, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away. And then you see how it ends. So the persecution of saints is not limited to a moment or to a certain group. But as the text says, more are coming and it will go on for a period of time. In fact, according to Daniel, the martyrdom of the saints will actually be concentrated in the second half of tribulation in that time, times, and half a time reference, which we already learned is three and a half years, the second half of the seven. So you notice we're still in the first half of tribulation here in our study. So the the martyrdom begins right away. It doesn't get rolling until the second half. So it's a continual thing that gets worse as we go. This seal, in a way, provides a contrast to the one we just studied, to the fourth one. Notice the contrast here. In the fourth judgment, the one we just got done with a moment ago, death came to the whole world because of the war, right? Where did all of those who were dying in the war go? Hades. Hades. So that meant that the fourth judgment was speaking only of the death of the unbeliever because they're all going to Hades. But lest you think, oh, well, it'll be fine if you're a believer during the tribulation, you'll be fine. It's only the unbelievers who are getting wiped out with all of the judgments. (laughs) Well, Uh, In case that was your thought, here comes seal number five. And seal number five balances those scales, so to speak. So in the case of the unbeliever, the indirect cause of their death was the Antichrist's uh, leadership and his uh, triggering of war, right? That's the indirect cause. What's the direct cause? What's the true cause for why so many of the earth are dying and going to Hades? It was Jesus opening the scroll, all right? And now, by contrast, the fifth judgment is exactly the same thing, in a way. It shows death coming to saints. And unlike those who go to Hades, the dead here are finding themselves under the altar in the throne room of God, crying out for vengeance. But they have the same kind of pattern here. What was the indirect cause of their death? The Antichrist, again. What was the direct cause? The opening of a fifth seal. So, even though the circumstances of each group's death are very different, And the destinations of their souls are very different. In both cases, the direct and indirect causes of their deaths are exactly the same. That is, the direct is Jesus in both cases, the indirect is the Antichrist in both cases, just from different activity. So where do these saints come from if all believers were raptured prior to the tribulation? Let me show you a chart here before we do that. I want to show you what I just said. So the fourth 
seal was everyone dying as a result of all the war. The fifth seal we're going to put down here because the fifth seal is not a moment. It doesn't follow sequentially. It's not as though the war finishes and then we get into the death of saints. No, it's a simultaneous activity. So we're going to put it underneath all of the ones we just studied. So the Antichrist, while he's out persecuting the, or prosecuting war, he's also persecuting the souls, the saints, that is, and those souls then being martyred end up in heaven. So the martyrdom of saints is a continual backdrop to the events of tribulation, brought about by Jesus' sovereign will to put his own people in positions to witness and testify and die for that testimony, which is something he can do. You know, you can make your life a living testimony and you can make your death a testimony, right? It's all available to him. In fact, since we know we're gonna die, we should set our minds to making sure that we do both. All right, that's how the world will start to see the impact of those sealed judgments. Now we move to the question of where did all of those believers come from if we've disappeared and there was no new believer that is sharing the truth. Well, it all traces back to God, of course. Chapter 6, verse 12, it says, uh, oh, we're going to get to that in a minute, sorry. I almost jumped too fast, didn't I? Chapter 6, verse 12, we have one more seal judgment we need to cover before we look at that question. Chapter 6, verse 12, it says, I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of their places. All right, this one's also a break from the past of the ones we've seen so far. Now, for the very first time, we see a seal judgment resulting in supernatural changes on the earth. And increasingly, that's what we will start to see. Supernatural things, God bringing things to pass by his own power. And there will be a series of these unimaginable cataclysmic upheavals, uh, upheavals of nature and of physical earth and of, of heavens and so on. It's just like the Old Testament prophets said about the great and terrible day of the Lord. It will be a day unlike any that has ever been nor will ever be again. Just nothing compares to it. And it's important to realize this is the very beginning of this stuff. This is early in the seven years and in the very earliest parts of what goes on, the first five seals we've already studied, the world will not see them as supernatural because they aren't for the most part. They are all coming from God, obviously, but in the way they play out, they look very ordinary, just at a different scale. And those natural events, being as bad as they are, they don't produce any kind of proof or evidence for those on earth that they're seeing the judgment of God. I'm sure the world will simply say, why has everything gotten so bad? Why are we in such a bad fix? But then as the supernatural judgments begin to kick in, beginning with the sixth seal, as those move forward, the supernatural evidence begins to pile up. And at some point, relatively quickly, the world begins to recognize this is, this is not just ordinary bad day stuff. We're in the middle of something biblical here. And literally, and the Lord is doing this. And that recognition will begin to dawn on them. But the interesting thing is, it will not have the result you might have expected. Here's the first of those supernatural, the sixth seal, bringing earthquakes, devastation to the face of the earth. I'm gonna go back to our chart here for just a second. So devastation is gonna now come from the sixth one. So we're talking about the, the moon going blood red, the sun going dark, earthquakes on the earth, and all the rest. Supernatural calamities. 
and the judge, or the sixth judgment. Let's look at each one of these just for a moment because I think it's helpful to imagine them with some precision to understand what the text is saying because otherwise I think it begins to sound a bit too fantastic, like a fantasy, and in which case it loses its drama. All right, so each of these effects piles up. And before we even look at them, you need to understand that in the series of judgments that come on the earth, this is the first wave of three waves of judgments. They go by the names of seals, trumpets, and bowls. At the end of each wave, there's one of this, these, these kinds of outbursts of supernatural destruction, a kind of punctuation at the end of each of those waves. This is the one for the first wave. And some of the events that you'll see, sometimes they resemble things we have today, like earthquakes and winds and so on. But of course, it doesn't come close to anything we see today in terms of magnitude. The magnitude of the devastation is simply unprecedented. Frankly, it's hard to even imagine. And it's terrifying. It's a display of God's awesome power and wrath to the whole of the planet. It's hard to appreciate, right? Um, in this case, as I mentioned, earthquakes, the sun, the moon, the stars, all seeing dramatic changes and the like. Let's go through them. First, the sun becomes black. This cannot simply be an eclipse because an eclipse, first of all, would be expected. It would not be threatening. It would not be a judgment. It wouldn't create devastation. It would just be a, a moment. But this is a devastation. So this has to be some other kind of unexplained turning off, darkening of the sun, therefore producing devastation. We'll come back to that. Next, the moon becomes blood red. This is a, a funny one. Think about it for a minute. The moon does not produce any light. So if the sun is black, how does the moon have red glow? So the moon is now giving off its own color absent the sun. And if anybody's paying attention in that day and age, they'll put that together as well. And it becomes a clear, supernatural, dramatic sign to the world that God is doing something. Because he just broke the laws of physics for their sake. Next, we're told the stars fall to the earth. But we have to immediately rule out a superliteral interpretation because a star is a sun. A sun cannot fall to our earth. Suns are hugely larger than our, our earth is, obviously. A sun of that size coming into contact with our earth would burn it up in a crisp in a second. So these are not literal suns falling on our earth. And by the same token, I cannot take the word entirely symbolically as we would have done in chapter one where we said a star is an angel because the context here is not angels. The context is of heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars. So I have to stay in a heavenly bodies context, but I can't be literal. What's left? Well, that would lead us to conclude that the word star here is being used in a kind of layman's sense, not in the scientific sense of a sun. So from the perspective of someone standing on the earth, when you see stars falling to the earth, what are you actually seeing? Meteors. Meteors, meteorites. So um, the meteor showers that are being described here as suns falling well, can you imagine if meteors were falling and they were sizable and they were consistent and, per and persistent, what kind of devastating effects would meteors have on the earth if it just kept coming? That's what you're talking about here. Then John says the sky is split and rolled up like a scroll, mountains and islands moved. I mean, that boggles your mind. In fact, think about the island or a mountain moving for just a moment. If, if an island or a mountain moves, even just a short distance, it obliterates everything that's on it. I mean, it's such tremendous force. It'd be like a child trying to push a sandcastle, even just a, an inch. What happens? 
it crumbles at the, at the pressure, right? That's what's going on when you move a mountain or an island on the earth. So how do we put all this together to make any sense of it? If we even try, some would say, well, why bother? It's all supernatural. True, but, but God is not putting an end to physics and gravity and the rest. He's working within his creation even at this point, though he's doing it in ways that are not natural. Some scientists have tried to understand what would happen if the sun suddenly stopped shining? And what effects would follow from it? Well, first, they know that the Earth's temperature would plunge in a matter of days to, to 100 degrees below zero and then continue going down after that. And those plunging temperatures at Earth's surface would lead to hurricane-force winds around the planet as you see the temperature changes just happen swinging very quickly. And then the atmosphere itself would undergo unpredictable violent change as temperature variations would swing. And then the sudden cooling of the Earth's surface would draw heat up from inside the Earth's core to the Earth's surface. That would produce probably severe earthquakes, strong enough to move continental plates. It would release magna, magma from the Earth. Um, and then if you were living through any of that, assuming you're living, you're escaping the severe cold. Mankind's got to go underground. There's no source of power at that point. They're going to be going underground to find the heat. And earthquakes, meanwhile, would make that journey perilous. Notice in verses 15 and 16, everyone is underground, rich to poor, free to slave, because without the sun, even the homes of the very rich can't handle the cold or earthquakes. And so they begin wishing for the fall of the rocks on their heads to put themselves out of the misery. So this is in Revelation chapter 7, or 6 rather, the last part of, the bold, of that sixth uh, judgment. He says, the sky was split, and then it says, then, verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide from us the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of that wrath has come and who is able to stand? So it fits, interestingly, the pattern of what would happen if you didn't have sunlight for any extended period of time. People, even the very rich, can't stay warm without going into caves. But then in the caves with the earthquakes, they, they'd say, you know what, I'd rather just be done with this. Fall on me, please. I'm tired of this. Put me out of my misery. And in response to all the events, you notice the comment that was read there at the end. They begin to understand what's really happening. Where before, in the earlier judgments, they just interpreted them as war and everyday events in some sense. In verses 16 and 17, now they're saying, ah, we're experiencing the wrath of God and of the Lamb. The great day of wrath has come. Now, it wouldn't take a genius at this point to conclude that things were the result of an unhappy God at the point that they're seeing these things. Yet that statement still begs a question. It's one thing to say, oh, God's mad at us. It's another thing to say the Lamb is upset at us. That's a specific understanding, a level of insight that would suggest someone is explaining it to them. Someone who knows Jesus is explaining this. And so the question becomes, who would be explaining these events to the world, and who is explaining about Jesus, since we know the church is not there? And that's part of what we get into now in chapter seven. Part of the answer to this doesn't come till later in chapter 11. Revelation seven, verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, 
do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So we begin the seventh chapter, John saying, then I saw, which is simply to say this is the next thing he was shown. That does not necessarily imply that what he's seeing here happened after the things of chapter six chronologically. Do not get into your heads that this book is written chronologically purely so you'll get messed up. He's just saying this is the next thing that was shown to me. So in describing the period of tribulation, uh, keep in mind, if you were to say to someone, let me explain to you what happened in World War II, and you were to write a book about it, could you write the story of World War II chronologically? No, because so much was happening simultaneously. You'd have to write first about the European theater, and then maybe you'd jump to the Pacific theater, then you'd jump back to the European. Well, chapters one and two are simultaneous in different places on the earth. That's the nature of writing. I mean, there's no other way to do it. Similarly, there's a lot going on. The events of tribulation are exceedingly complex. And in many cases, multiple things are happening simultaneously. Expect that, and as a result, look for the clues in the text that would tell us when John is giving things to us that are happening in conjunction with other things we've already heard. This will be one of those cases. Usually it comes in one of two ways. John will either give us specific time references which line up with other chapters, or the context of one chapter will fit the context of another, and we'll know that these are all part of the same scene or the same moment, all right? In this case, why do I know that this chapter is actually contemporaneous with the events we've already studied? How do we know what's going on at the same time? Because in what John says here, he's gonna show you that. Things here match to things in chapter six. Beginning with four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, which is just a euphemism, meaning the entire earth. These angels are said to be holding back the four winds of the earth, which means they stop all movement of wind on earth for a time. And notice in verse two, after that you see the the mention of the rising of the sun, And in verse three, we're told that nothing on the face of the earth can be harmed, at least for a time. Why am I giving you all that? Well, what did we just study a moment ago? A moment ago, what did we just hear? Winds were blowing, sun was dark, face of the earth devastated. Here we're hearing no wind blowing, sun is rising, no devastation on the earth. It's not as though we just went backward and the world got better. This is jumping back to a moment prior to the devastation that just took place in chapter six. This is equivalent to someone saying, meanwhile, in the Pacific theater, and jumping to the beginning of the story again, just in another place. So the events of chapter seven actually start or predate the events that ended chapter six. They're just another set of events that go alongside. That's why you notice this chapter doesn't open with any judgment. It's not a seal judgment. It's not a trumpet judgment. It's not a judgment at all. It's background on what's been going on in addition. So at the beginning of tribulation, what happened? Well, we heard at the very beginning of chapter six that there was a man that was let loose on the earth and blah, blah, blah. We know from Daniel that at the very beginning of tribulation, a covenant was signed. And now we get a third piece of data. At the very beginning of tribulation, four angels went out and stopped all the wind on the earth from blowing. And it itself was a judgment because uh, to stop all winds on earth would have a devastating effect on the earth's weather cycle, water cycle, and so on. The water cycle of the earth is driven by wind. Wind carries moisture off the oceans, 
up mountains on the earth. They condense, the clouds condense at the top of the mountains in the cooler air. They rain on the mountains. Rain on the mountains becomes snow and rain depending on the time of year. That then feeds the water cycle of the earth. Water, you know, replenishing the, the earth with fresh water, which then gets eventually taken back up in, in, uh, to, the, to the sky and on, or flows to the ocean and then eventually back up into the sky. That's all wind-driven. Without wind, water just stays where it is. And eventually, what you find is famine, drought, starvation on the earth. All right, this detail reminds us of the earlier seal judgments. In other words, what it's saying is that the Antichrist's rise to power and the war that ensued produced its own effect, but in the background, you had the Lord adding to that effect by stopping the normal water cycle on the earth. And these angels were involved in those worsening calamities. But... In verse two, we hear of a fifth angel who ascends from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. Now, we don't know who this angel is, though it's obvious he's significant and he has authority because he gives the other angels orders. And he begins, now, this begins really a new pattern in the book of Revelation in which we see angels increasingly at center stage, acting on God's command, performing the works of what Revelation demonstrates to us, uh, communicating to John, telling him what's going on. Angels become a big part in in the letter. In this chapter, you learn that it's important to God that devastation be carefully timed in relationship to a group that he wants to seal first. So here's what happened at the beginning of tribulation. Verse three, the four angels are told they cannot begin their devastating attacks on the earth until the bondservants of God are sealed. So they stop wind for a time which has a universal effect, but they go no further until there is a ceiling of a group of people. Now, a bondservant is the New Testament term for a believer in Jesus Christ. And a ceiling is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit as they believe. Or another way to say it is, to be sealed is to be born again. And Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Same terminology, same idea. So, what do we conclude here in this passage? God is describing a preparation step so that he can bring a group of people to faith, and he's asked his angels to hold off on any devastation until those people have, in fact, come to faith. Now, why does he mention sealing on their, quote, forehead? Obviously, in the way we believe, we're not sealed in just a part of our body. We have the whole indwelling of the spirit. That's our sealing, Well, I think the mention here relates to something that happens later in the book of Revelation, because later, during these seven years, it'll become mandatory for every human being to receive a distinguishing mark on their forehead. That mark, if you take it, indicates that you worship the Antichrist. And those who refuse to take that mark will be killed. Now, we're going to cover all that later, of course, but I think the mention of sealing of the forehead here is intended to contrast with the mark that's gonna be taken later as a way of sort of indicating these are mine and the Antichrist will have his. Not that this ceiling is visible like the mark will be, but it's just to make the connection for us, all right? We'll come back to that later. So to recap, at the beginning of tribulation, the Lord will stop all wind, which begins to create a significant problem for the earth. Meanwhile, you have the Antichrist rising to his power through the opening of the seals. And as all of that is happening, The Lord is at work bringing to faith a new generation of believers on earth, 
And then John gets to tell us where this new generation of believers comes from. Let me put this on a graph. So you have four angels. They're little ones on here, but I'm sure they're bigger in real life. While all of the other stuff we just studied is going on, these four angels are getting ready to do the job of sealing, of holding back winds without doing more damage so God can go out and seal the new believers. All right, so let's talk about who these people are. Verse four. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. And the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. And the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. All right, here you have the infamous 144,000 of tribulation. And you may have heard a lot about this. I'm almost certain you've heard it somewhere. And there has been, this is probably another of those uh, Hall of Fame speculation points in the book of Revelation, a, a group of people here that have been talked about. And you've probably heard people saying different things about who these are and what they mean and where they'll come in history. And most of what you heard is utter nonsense because it's divorced from the text. Right? You may have heard uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or other non-Christian groups claiming that they are the 144,000, right? Frankly, they can have it. Um, some argue over the nationality or the origin of these people or the timing of their appearing and all of that. All that argument is unnecessary. It's a completely waste of time because the text settles all of those questions for us right here. You don't have to speculate. First, this is a group of bondservants, we're told, who come to faith after the start of tribulation while the angels are out there holding back the wind. Uh, Last time I checked, there's never been a day in the history of the earth where there wasn't an ounce of wind anywhere on the planet. That's a predecessor to this moment. So until that happens, you can't have any of the 144,000, right? Um, If you have 144,000 men coming to faith in this day, that confirms for us something we saw in chapter five, which is that the Holy Spirit will be back at work on the earth producing faith. Or simply put, The rapture, as we call it, is not the last chance for someone to believe in Christ, although it is a much better thing to believe before than after because of what they'll endure. Uh, As Jesus says in John 3, the Spirit is, his presence is evidenced by his effect because you can't see him. So just as when you detect the presence of the wind because you see leaves moving, similarly, you can know the Spirit is at work here because you see people getting saved. One is the conclusion of the other. So people being brought to faith and sealed means he's there working. Uh, Secondly, we know that no believer on earth today can be part of this group because if you are a believer on the earth, you're removed prior to these events. That that means even if you have delusions of grandeur and you think you're one of the 144,000, you know you're gonna be removed before they're even in the story. And then lastly, all of these believers are taken from tribes of Israel. They're all Jewish. So unless you descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, plan to somehow sneak through the rapture and end up in the tribulation. I mean, it's just ludicrous for anyone to think that they could be part of this group now or that you could know of anyone who's gonna be part of this group now. The irony is this, if the tribulation were to happen in, let's say, in our lifetime from now, it's possible that someone walking the earth right now is one of the 144,000, but it's only because they're not believing now and they won't be at the rapture And then there'll be one of these at the time that God creates them. The funny thing is, if you found that person, they would deny they're part of the 144,000 because they wouldn't know. (laughs) 
All right, turning to the group. We are told they are taken an equal number from 12 tribes of Israel. And this is an interesting detail, partly because we only know of one tribe today that can be reasonably identified. That is, those who have a last name that traces to the tribe of Levi, names like Cohen, for example. Uh, you know, even then, that doesn't necessarily prove that that person's Jewish, but it's an indication. But for the most part, all other tribes have been lost. We don't know for a fact who's who. God still knows. And remember, we're not talking about you know, Gentiles who are secretly Jewish and don't know it. We're, not talking, we're talking about uh, Jews who are Jews. They just don't know what tribe they're from. So if you've ever been thought, if you ever wondered, oh, maybe I'm Jewish and don't know it, you're not Jewish. Um, you're Jewish, trust me, if you're Jewish, you know you're Jewish, right? You practice it, you live it, you grew up in it, you're Jewish. That's Jewish. We're talking here about people who are that way, but they just don't know what tribe they're from. But God does. And he will distribute his grace evenly among these tribes. Now, some have wondered why the tribe of Dan is missing. You may not know, but there are 13 tribes of Israel once Joseph's place in the 12 was split into Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's always 13 tribes. And in the way scripture typically lists tribes of Israel, it likes symmetry. And so it often has 12, not all 13. And that means somebody's going to be missing sooner or later somewhere. And in lists of 12 in the, in the Bible, you'll find different ones missing in different places. Uh, here you see Dan missing. Uh, whenever you have 12 tribes, that is, you leave one out. The message usually is the one that's out is out for some reason related to the circumstance. Here, Dan is missing, and so the best guess is that Dan's history of having been the tribe that first introduced idolatry into Israel would make them ineligible to be part of introducing true worship into a world that's devoid of worship, of, of true faith. Uh, now, that does not mean that no one in the tribe of Dan will be saved. It just means that they won't be counted among the initial 144,000. All right? Later in Revelation, we find a second chapter, chapter 14, devoted to these same men. And in that chapter, we learn a few more things about them. And I'll just mention two briefly here. One is they're all men. Secondly, they're all virgins. And that apparently plays a part in what God why God chose them. So last thing about them and then we'll move on. Why does the Lord start with Jews and why does he use such an interesting number, 12 times 12? Well, first, the Jewish one is pretty easy. It's always gonna start with the Jew. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says in John chapter four to the woman at the well, which means God always works to the Jewish people to do everything that he does for humanity, period. The patriarchs were Jewish, the prophets were Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, the Lord was Jewish. The covenants were given to Jews. The word of God was written through Jewish writers. The temple service belongs to Israel. Everything that we have regarding salvation and our relationship with Jesus was made available to us through the Jewish people. And just as the Lord promised Abraham, it would be through his seed that he would bless many nations. And that pattern never changes. So even in tribulation, when he's down to zero believers and he has to start new and fresh again, he goes back to the same place, Israel. Secondly, then, what does he do this weird 12 thing, you know, 12,000, 12 times, so on. Well, 12 in the Bible is the number of governing, God governing through human leaders. So that would mean that these men represent the new house of God on earth, the beginning of the new house of God on earth, leading a new worldwide evangelistic effort. But there's something else deeper you need to consider. What do we understand about the number 1,000 or 144,000 in the context of coming to faith? And by that I mean this. Remember, these are literal numbers. This is not metaphor. So exactly 144,000 men came to faith 
at the onset, at the initial days of tribulation. Not 143,399. Now, what that tells you is that the process is entirely supernatural. There are no evangelists to evangelize them, first of all. Secondly, what are the odds, if you are of the mind that says people come to faith just because they choose to believe and nothing else, let me ask you, what are the odds that 144,000 exactly, not one more or less, come to faith? Could it happen? Yes. What are the odds? And the fact that it's that number, not some other number, 144,000, God ruling through men, times 12, just to double it. The point is clear, right? The unavoidable conclusion is God is the author of our faith. He gave these men the faith that brought them to a confession so that they would work for him. And they got that out of nothing, a la Paul on the road to Damascus. And he did it according to his choice. He didn't just say, the first 144,000 that want to believe in me can be saved. He picked 12,000 from 12 tribes, and he left out a tribe just to make sure you know it's not random. God selected these men and saved them for no cause of their own so that no man may boast. And, a, and did it in such a perfect number so that you and I could see it right now and say, well, gee whiz, I guess God is the author of our faith. I guess God chooses us. So God brings those Jews to faith in Jesus. Then he calls them to be the first evangelists of tribulation. And from this seed group, you now have the world experiencing a new wave of faith. And you see that in the next part of the chapter as we finish up here. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All right, so John connects this passage to the previous one. Notice the phrase, after these things. That is meaningful. In Greek, that phrase suggests cause and effect. So in other words, what he's saying is the same thing we saw at the beginning of chapter four, remember? The beginning of chapter four, after these things. What was that cause and effect? Well, in chapter three, the church ends. Chapter four, what's the effect of that cause? The church in heaven. Similarly, what's the cause here that you have uh, God saving 144,000 men? What's the effect then? uh, This uncountable number coming to faith as a result. So it tells us that these men led a worldwide evangelistic movement which had as its result an uncountable crowd standing before the throne. They are in heaven now, which means they're believers. And the palm branches they hold, the white robes they wear, just confirm that. They come from every nation and tribe, which tells us these are not the 144,000. The 144,000 came from one nation. These come from every nation. So these are different. These are the people they produced. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 when he talked about the end of the age. Let me back up here, sorry. He said that in this time of lawlessness, when there would be the Antichrist and so on, he said at the very end there, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In that one verse, Jesus was talking about Revelation 7. All right? Now, think about this. You have a multitude joining the worship in the Lamb in in the throne room, just like the resurrected saints did in chapters 4 and 5, singing praise. 
Uh, that means what? They're dead. They're in heaven. So they're not unhappy, obviously, to be there. They've, they've escaped the trials and tribulations. By the way, this is true for every believer. Those who pass away, they enter into an existence far better than the one they leave, even if it's not tribulation down here. It's always worse than what's up there. Uh, but the fact that they're in heaven tells us two very important things. Uh, and it's so important, in fact, that John himself gets told to pay attention to that detail. Look at the next passage, the last passage for the night. John is asked, uh, one of the elders, he said, answering, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? John's asked that question. And John says back to the elder, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So John Avoids the question sheepishly, doesn't know the answer maybe, doesn't want to say the wrong thing, and he gets the answer back. These are the ones who have been saved by the work of the evangelist. They've died. They've now been taken out of the world. They're no longer going to suffer. They're safe with Christ. Here's the two things that you learn. First, it confirms that belief during the time of tribulation is deadly. These are not just those who were under the altar. This is now backing up and saying how they came to be souls that believed, And now you see them all in heaven again, just to confirm they don't stay on the earth. What you're learning and what we'll see confirmation of throughout the book of tribulation is very, very few believers live to the end of tribulation. Very few. The vast majority, maybe 95% of all who come to faith during the time of tribulation will be martyred. And that is a far better outcome than living to the end of tribulation for reasons you'll learn in chapter 20. Secondly, this scene confirms that what we're looking at are events that run concurrently with the judgments of chapter six. How do we know that? Well, this is not a single moment here. This chapter is telling the story of evangelism throughout the time of tribulation. There will be evangelism for a time. There will be martyrdom as a result. So again, let's step back and take another look at what we're seeing here with our our chart. This chart's gonna help us throughout the whole of it. So you have the angels who start at the beginning holding back the wind, but not allowing anything more devastating until you see those 144,000 ready. Not until you see the whole multitude ready, just until you see the beginnings ready, the 144,000. Once God has brought faith, however he does it, to the 144,000, then the rest of the devastating impact of what you see in the seal judgments are allowed to play out, even as the evangelists are running around the world getting the word to people about Jesus. I wonder if, you know, no atheist in a foxhole, I wonder if God letting the worst come helps the evangelists in their work to turn people's hearts to Christ. In any case, what we're saying is that 144 Jews selected and evangelizing is another of the backdrops of the time. That's why, again, this chapter has no seal judgment, has no breaking of a seal, etc. It's a backdrop moment to explain what you've been seeing already, to give you more context, all right? So that's the picture of how those seals play out. But there's one missing, right? There's one missing, a seventh one. Before we, we're not gonna look at that tonight, we're gonna end on this, but I wanna show you what's coming by giving you an appreciation for how the judgments all fit together. It's a very simple idea. I mentioned to you last week, right? 
I said Russian nesting dolls, they're called, where the little ones fit inside the bigger ones and so on, hide one inside the other. In a sense, that's exactly how the judgments of tribulation are structured. These three waves that I described a moment ago are connected like nesting dolls. I'm gonna put a chart up on the screen for you. So you have, on the one hand, the seal judgments. We've gone through six. You'd expect the seventh at this point, and then we would launch into the next wave, right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that because the seventh judgment is actually the next six judgments. So the trumpet judgments are the seventh seal judgment. There's no separate devastation apart for, for the seventh seal. There's nothing else except the fact that it triggers six trumpets. And by the same token, the seventh trumpet is all of the bold judgments. Okay? So when you get to the end of the sixth one of any one of, of the first two judgment series, whether that's seals or trumpets, when you get to the sixth one, you're done, basically. When you see the seventh one broken, it's a sign that you're moving into the next wave. Well, if you look at the beginning of chapter eight, the seventh one is broken, and you hear angels getting trumpets handed to them, <laughs> which is how we move into the next series of judgments, okay? So that's where we start next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our heads are filled and probably overflowing. I just pray, Father, that you'd make sense of it because we can't without you. But even in these things of such far away time and place that won't affect us personally on the earth, nonetheless, Father, there's something here for us to know and share with others in some way to give them a better understanding of you and perhaps to bring them to a faith in you. We ask for the privilege to do that with somebody. And give us a week of thanksgiving in our hearts as is intended so that we would be that much more aware of all the blessings we've received. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.